Welcome to the Adventure Therapy Collective Podcast. Our offices are mountains, rivers, and the woods. Climbing, hiking, and paddling are just what the doctor ordered. Hey, Will. How's it going? Good, man. Uh, it's New Year's Eve here in Australia, 10 a.m. What are you What are you even doing for this uh, holiday season, if that's something that you do? It always freaks me out how you're like calling me from the future. I'm like, oh, New Year's, that's tomorrow. Because sometimes you'll call and you'll say something about what day it is. And I'm like, oh, I forgot to do something. And then I'm like, oh, no, that's that's tomorrow. It's Australia, literally a whole day away from us. <laughs> no, I had a good that's holiday. Right. I got to spend a lot of it outdoors, went and played uh, Carport Santa with my brother and his family. And so I was able to do the social distance outdoors and see my nieces and do a little bit of Christmas time up there. So it wasn't too bad. Do you guys still have COVID down there in Australia? Not, not like we do, right? Well, no. I was talking to uh, Ben Feynman from Very Bad Therapy Podcast yesterday about a research project we're doing. He said, it feels like my life is in a like a totally different universe. <laughs> Because we uh, go out to restaurants and uh, we have we do a lot of uh, contact tracing. So when you walk into any business, basically, you have to scan with your phone to say you've been there so they can find you if uh, you all get sick. But yeah, we had uh, uh, it made breaking news that we had one new case in South Australia the other day. Well, we're, we're actually supposed to do the contact tracing. But I don't think they do it very well. So I think that they've kind of dropped the ball on that. If we walk into uh, the chemist or the pharmacy, you scan to go in. You walk into a restaurant, you scan, hand sanitize, and then go about your business. So can your boss hack that? And so they're like, oh, Will came in late for work. Let's see. Let's see if he was at the bar last night. Yeah, probably. I don't. That (laughs) that's my that's my my anarchist fear. But yeah, it was good. We we set up a baby pool in the backyard because, of course, it was like 100 degrees Fahrenheit for Christmas Day here. We call it the sunburnt Christmas. I took the canoe out and did some fishing and it was a totally overcast day. And I came out with the worst farmer's tan because I was not sun smart. And uh, do you ever get this? I I know you're like a bit more of a, a gear nerd and outdoor activity nerd than I am. But do you ever find when you're not working and you go outside you become a dumber outdoors person because you're not on high alert. Like the fact I went out on the water in the middle of summer with no sunscreen on and came out sunburned. I was like, Will, you're an idiot. I think you forgot, Will. I'm never working. I just always go and play outdoors and avoid work as much as possible. That's a good point. <laughs> so that That's doesn't apply point. to me. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. But I'll yeah, look for we, that phenomenon once actually I have to start going to work at some point. Yeah, you, you'll get there. Well, we're getting back into this back half of the interview you did with Tony. Yep, Tony and, part two. Uh, Tony part two. And I thought it was a good time to actually chat about Tony's new book, which he wrote with a motley crew of other practitioners and scholars. Yeah, this book is like kind of an all-star list of adventure therapy people, U.S. adventure therapy people. So it's Tony, uh, Gary Stauffer, Maury Long, Kim Sackstetter, Bobby Beal, and Anita Tucker. So, I mean, if you go to an adventure therapy event in the U.S., you'll always see at least one, probably all these people presenting. So they're kind of like an all-star cast and crew of gurus of the field in the States. And since I live uh, in this isolated continent in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, 
my copy's on the way. So all I've been able to read is the 50 free pages they give you on Amazon. And it's interesting. This has been the year of kind of adventure therapy books. We have uh, the second edition of Gaskillis Russell's adventure therapy book. We have adventure group psychotherapy and then the, the outdoor therapies book. This is such a good thing for our field. And Wait, who did the outdoor therapies book? Uh, it was this guy. I don't remember his Wasn't it some, name. some guy who doesn't really know anything? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was a, I hear he's and the final kid. chapter was definitely written by two know-nothings, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> who who let two numbskulls write critical perspectives? <laughs> yeah. They were not being critical enough. But one of the things I was really blown away with is it's so interesting to think of the different angles different writers take when they view adventure. You know, we're all talking about this thing. We use this same word. We all don't really use this. The, the term is different depending on who's using it, if you will. And one of the things I really liked about what I read was the inclusion of neuroscience. This is something that hasn't been in a lot of our work, a real unpacking of trauma-informed care. And, and one thing I've been really thinking about is really revisiting John Dewey's work about experience, uh, the, the ontology of experience, experiential learning. I did just use the word ontology on a podcast, which I think <laughs> I'll edit out eventually. Um, yeah, I think like three people are going to unsubscribe because of that, which will be half of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry, mom. <laughs> You're gone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that just bringing in stuff from big picture therapy, big picture mental health, this, what we can learn from neuroscience, what we can learn about uh, trauma and, and, and the, the impact of, of trauma, I think is bringing something new but then using it and developing the experiential wave model that Tony, Mori, and Gary have written about previously. Yep, absolutely. That's what's kind of cool about this book is there's a lot of books about adventure therapy, nature-based therapy, outdoor therapies, where you can see an overview of what different people have been doing. Less of them are like a cookbook of how to apply and utilize adventure therapy. This totally. book would be like an awesome textbook or an awesome thing for any practitioner to have and use that is trying to do adventure group psychotherapy because it's got the model that you talk about, the facilitated wave, and how to use that, how to use that to guide learning and how to use that for ongoing assessment and matching interventions to what's going on and shaping the environment. So I'm, I'm looking at the different chapters and talking about them, but the chapters almost read like the structure of how you're supposed to do adventure-based group psychotherapy if you're using these models, which are incredibly popular models, and they're models that have been used for quite a long time. Uh, I mean, Gary and Tony took this from an, an older wave model that was in, I think, Islands of Healing book, and then they, they adapted this and applied it and made their version of it, and it's been their model for adventure therapy for quite a while. So it's pretty cool to be able to look at this book and to really get inside how they use this practice. And then you have the wisdom of, of the other practitioners around the book mm -hmm. as well, when you're looking at how, how Maury, Kim, Bobby, and Anita utilize these uh, different ther uh, theories and techniques. So that's, it, it's an incredible manual. I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in adventure group psychotherapy and wants to know how it works. And also good for maybe people who are social workers or talk therapists who go, I don't really know what that adventure stuff is. And 
how is it that you take something like rock climbing or activities in a park and turn that into therapy? And this kind of shows people how that actually works. Yeah, totally. No, I think it's really good. Uh, before we get to the interview, I have a uh, confession to make, Daniel. No, I, uh, I I went on another Adventure Therapy-ish podcast, just so you know. Oh, no. I know. Don't do that. They're probably all better than ours. There are only yeah, like two more, so we're definitely dead last. <laughs> we're, well, we're hacks, so. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I got interviewed by uh, Will White, who does Stories from the Field, and one of the things I really like about Will White's podcast is if you want to get to know all these people that are authors on this book, Will White's probably interviewed them. So I know he's interviewed Bobby, definitely interviewed Kim, definitely interviewed Anita. I don't know about Gary and Tony, but yeah, if you want to get to know these people, that's a great place to go to hear their story, hear how you get into the field. And I was a bit nervous about getting interviewed by Will since he's interviewed basically everyone I've ever looked up to in this field, including my first boss. Like, it's pretty weird. It was interesting to tell a story about how I got into the field that probably don't tell a lot of people about my troubled youth and being naughty and going to a heap of therapy and stuff. But so I think, I think everyone was, uh, already assumed that you were just like a, a troubled kid <laughs> with your uh, skateboard punk rock attire at conferences. People were like, yeah, that Something's wrong with Will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But and so not saying that so people that go into therapy have something wrong with them, but as a grown skateboarding punk rock kid, I'm saying that people that are like skater punks have something wrong with them. Yeah. No, there's no doubt about that. But, um, but yeah, definitely go check out Will White's podcast if you are, are a listener to this, because if you want to get to know some of the people who are writing these books, who are spending their days thinking about this field, improving the amount of literature we have. Uh, it's a good place to go to. Yeah, Will Will has done an incredible job. Not our Will in this podcast, but Will White has done an incredible job with his podcasts. And as far as I know, the first Adventure Therapy, Wilderness Therapy podcast, and especially his older seasons, he's went through and covered a ton of all the different wilderness therapy programs that existed. And this season, I think he's doing like front country adventure therapy stuff, more of like the types of folks that we've interviewed, right? Yeah, outpatient. Yeah, he's focusing on outpatient, which I think uh, in, in I don't know when the episode I just interviewed with him will come out, but I think I spoke about it for about 15 seconds. So I wasn't really a good guest on his for the theme of the whole thing. But anyway, let's get to uh, more Tony and yeah. Happy more Tony Year, and less Will and Dan. <laughs> yeah, let's get to the gurus. All right. Do new adventure therapists need specialized training in like hard wilderness skills such as a wilderness first responder or an American Mountain Guide Association certification or any of the hard skill certifications, maybe a BCU paddling certification? What, what are your thoughts on those? Well, if we back up to what adventure is, and it's a mindset, right? So then what, what, what an adventure therapist brings into their practice is a collection of skills that are in their bag, right? And so, you know, I personally don't really like to be underground, right? <laughs> and so caving is kind of like, hmm, cute, cool, 
I've done it a few times, but not for me. Uh, jumping off airplanes, mm, not so much, right? So those two particular challenges are challenges that I would almost 99.9% would never use in my practice, right? However, if I was, I would want to have certification in those, in those practices. I would want, yeah, the licensure so that I can do those kinds of things. So I can run ropes courses because I've gone through the training to, to set up belays and do those kinds of things. I can go on and, you know, take people climbing outdoors and, and even indoors uh, because I've gone and done the certification requirements. I don't take people paddling. I love to paddle, but I don't take people paddling in my practice, and so I don't think I need to know. I need that expertise. So as I evolve as an adventure therapist and as I start to, to sort of step out and take on new tools, it behooves me to be trained in those tools and be certified in those tools. I think it's important to have first aid because it's important to have first aid training no matter what you're doing because you're always around people that might need it. Um, but other than that, all the other ones, I think, are dependent on whether those are, those are tools that you intend to use in your practice. So it sounds like you should get the certification that fits what you're going to do and there's not a blanket certification that works for everyone, except for maybe first aid. Maybe all people should have that. But right. the other skills, you get the skill that you're going to use with right. your adventure therapy skills. Right. So that's what I think. So if, if you're working at a residential program, for example, in Utah, I, I, I visited a residential program in Utah, and my gosh, they had a potpourri of activities, right? They had equine-assisted therapy. They had uh, each client uh, adopted a calf that they nurtured during the time that they were in, in the setting. Um, but they also had, like, theater, and they had art and poetry writing, and then they had climbing up at, you know, the Mount Zions and places of that nature, right? So they had all of these um, resources available. So if I was going to be hired as a therapist there or to do therapy work there, um, I would want to be sure that I was licensed and or certified in all of the possible tools that they have available to me so that I don't limit the experiences of the clients that I work with. You have worked in adventure therapy for over 30 years. How have you seen the field change and grow during your time as an adventure therapy practitioner and educator? When I started, when I came into the field, um, a, there were a lot of people sort of like me who who did amazing work. Well, not like me, but there were people in the field who were doing amazing work who never really let us know or let me know what their degrees were. They were just, they were amazing guys. Uh, the, the guy who taught me how to get fire, a, a bow drill fire going. If you ask me, like, what his degrees were, I have no idea. But... Would I go back to him? Would I pay for him to guide me in, in X, Y, and Z? For sure, right? So back in the day before we got involved in, in, in licensure and, and insurance claims and, and those kinds of things, uh, the field was different. But also back in the day, the participants were different. And I think we had more people coming into the field who were coming in because they thought of the field as what it was, 
it's not the same now because the, the, the folks who are coming to wilderness work, to do wilderness therapy or to participate in these programs, uh, they're coming in with more mental health, you know, at least more known mental health conditions and disabilities. And, um, and we're, yeah, and we're more in tune with sort of that assessment, the mental health assessment. And so there's more need for more, you know, for licensed people to be guiding the kind of, you know, the, 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 the types of challenges that are being presented to us in the field. So it's different that way. Uh, I remember back in the day uh, talking to someone who talked about uh, going out to, to the woods and they was going to do a climbing thing and they had a, a, a log up, up there that they had to climb in, up on and, and he wanted them to do it blindfolded. And they got up there and it was like, oh no, we forgot our bag of bandanas. How can we be blindfolded when we don't have our bandanas? And and the guide, you know, ripped off his shirt and ripped off his T-shirt and took out his knife and cut it up into pieces so that we could tie it around our heads, you know. At the time, it was just like, cool, right? Uh, nowadays, you know, we have to, like, spray that with <laughs> things so that it's a, a, a acceptable to the population, right? Different that way. We've become more professional in a way, and many of our tools are guided by and driven by, uh, you know, licensure, and, and rightly so, right? Because of germ being passed on and because of, you know, certain nuts and bolts having to be tight in certain ways so that things will hold for us because of liability and worry about liability and, 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 and safety issues. Um, so it's different that way. Um, I think it's also different and maybe I'm overstepping myself here, but I think it's also different because I think maybe we're training people to think that adventure therapy is about tools and techniques and not about a mindset. And so people are coming into it, into the field, and thinking, I need to have, right? If I'm going to have a practice, I need to have a ropes course, and I need to have seven kayaks, and I need to have... And so people think it's a really expensive you know, approach to practice, and again, those are the tools. And, and I think for maybe, I don't know, the last 20 years, my practice has only relied on, you know, an adventure bag and, you know, a garage full of old tires and two-by-fours and PC, PVC pipes and things of that nature to, to create my own adventures, right? And so um, the field has changed. There are more people that rely on these kits and these these set up activities and because I don't think they come in with that mindset that it's in my head. And I think of adventure therapy practitioners, older practitioners like you or Gary Stoffer or Noel Pampa and you guys can do adventure therapy anywhere with anything. I see you pick up sticks or rocks and come up right. with wonderful interventions. Right. So it's not necessarily having a certification in multi-pitch rock climbing. You can do adventure therapy kind of anywhere. I think so. Many adventure therapists start as low-paid field guides or in entry-level outdoor industry positions and pursue the transition to an adventure therapist as a career goal. Can you share some insight into the path that you have seen people take to make this jump? You know, there's a sadness in our, in our society uh, around 
how much we cherish people that do guide work, whether you're an educator, uh, like a teacher, or whether you're a counselor, right? These are the low-paying jobs in, in our society. And so that follows us in adventure-based work, right? And so, so that's one of the factors. The other factor is that I think when this started, there wasn't that need for certification. And, you know, we started with a lot of camps and a lot of outdoor spaces, and people did all these fun things. And then as we, as we started requiring more specifications and, and we're more aware of, you know, insurance and, and liability and those kinds of things, then, then more expenses became, places like this accrued more th- costs. And, and by and large, they still found people who came to do this work because they loved being outdoors and they loved play. And so those folks were like, that's okay. I don't care that I'm not making too much money because I have, you know, I'm I'm outdoors, which is where I want to be, and I'm engaging in action-based work with people, and I love this practice. And so that piece is priceless, and so the salary becomes palatable, right? But now we're expecting people who love the outdoors who bring still the priceless sort of perspective of nature-based work, outdoor work, working in, with action with our hands, um, that stuff. But they also come with a $50,000 student loan, right? And so people are coming in saddled or burdened by these, by these expenses that they've had to take to fit in to these priceless experiences. And we as a field, I think, are working to change that. And I think we're getting better at, at paying people, right, what they're worth. But we're, we're far from it. Awesome. So it sounds like there's adventure available in so many more places than it's sometimes applied. Yeah, I think so. Many people think of adventure therapy as taking people into the mountains or backcountry, but you have spent your career doing adventure therapy in schools and therapy offices far away from the wilderness in the greater Detroit metro area. How did you do adventure therapy in these places? Uh, to start with the mindset, right? Remind, to remind you and the audience that adventure is in my head, and so then I can take it anywhere, right? So if I'm working in the inner city, I can still do adventure there. Um, there's also... And there's, this has been an argument in, in the field, and partly about privilege and partly about uh, access, that I, I, I would go to conferences, I talk to people about um, how I would take groups of kids from, from, for example, from this elementary school, right? These are kids who never left, quote, the, the wrong side of the street, right? They lived across the track, so to speak, right? Um, and so I'm their social worker, and I'm working with them in the school, and I take them out to the bush. I take them out to whatever wilderness I can find, you know, 50 miles from, from where the school is. And um, we're taking walks out there, and kids say things like, oh, my gosh, I just saw a huge, huge dog. And then later on to find that it was a deer that crossed the path. And their lack of education and knowledge about the woods and the wilderness and, and nature 
was just stark, right? And so, yes, I should keep taking kids out to the woods because they're learning things other than this stuff, right? On the other hand, they come from a school where renting a bus to take the kids out to these places cost a lot of money and re require 27 signatures. And they only allow one a year. So then, if I'm going to keep taking these kids out, I need to have a budget, which I don't have. And so I have to, I don't have access to always take them out to the woods. So does that mean then that I don't give them adventure? My premise is, no, let's give them adventure here. And in fact, part of my part of my rationale for the kind of tools that I use is intentional. It's that I want the, the participants, the young people, to experience the, the adventure without being like blinded by, ooh, that ropes course, ooh, that climbing wall, ooh, this beautiful nature. And, and instead to be faced with these are like old tires and two-by-fours, and we're playing it in some asphalt. Nothing about that is unusual or unique. And the only unusual, unique part of their experience is going to be the effective communication that it took them to take those tires and boards to cross a pretend river on the asphalt. The focus ends up being the work rather than the tools. And sometimes I think that's more fun. I think sometimes it, it, it's easier to apply the takeaway, the, the, the learning, the, the application of the lesson back to their home because I go to their playground where they play every day and I'm showing them how to cooperate and I'm showing them how to problem solve using tools that they have in, the back, in their backyards. And so the lessons are not far away from their life experiences. Different from traveling 50 miles to go to a ropes course to learn how to trust or to learn how to problem solve up in the sky. And the takeaway is, man, I was 30 feet up in the air. Uh, man, you should see these cables. I was swinging up 30 feet away. Whoa, that was so awesome. And, and not that I trusted people or that I worked well together with other people. I, I like working in, in, the, in the settings that people are sort of familiar with, right? I think Cartan did that, right? He, he worked in the, in the water on ships. That's where people, that's where people, you know, that was their livelihood. But he just showed them a different way, a different perspective to think about the work that they were doing and to make it more effective. And, and so I think on the one hand, I value that. I, I like that my tools are two by fours and 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 pieces of things from my from my backyard. On the other hand, by doing that, then the kids in general, the marginalized, you know, the kids who are from marginalized populations, end up not knowing the wilderness. And so I struggle with that. That I'm taking that away from them, and I'm giving them the therapy that they need, or that they get, they want but they don't get the beauty of the of nature and the wilderness. So it's a struggle. It sounds like you've done some of both where you get a lot of adventure that you do in the front country settings and schools in the inner cities, 
And then you also take some of these inner city youth into places that are in the wilderness or in the outdoors that maybe they don't otherwise experience. Right. Yeah. I have one more one more sort of example that I think leads perhaps to how we get, for example, school districts to be okay about having a bus for people to do adventure trips, right? I was working at an elementary school, and they were getting ready for what they call field day. I don't know if you remember that, field day, right? And everybody's doing all these competitive kinds of things. And for one year, I offered to be the, the lead person to create our field day uh, rather than the gym teacher, right? I did it. And, and instead of the normal kind of see how far you can throw a Frisbee and, and basketball and, and all of the different things that normally would show up in field day, you know, three-person jump, whatever, um, I created a, a series of stations around the school, outside and inside. They were all adventure-based activities. And I did a, a, a very quick training of all the teachers around facilitation of these activities. And then the kids roamed around the school in groups of six or eight. Uh, and then they did every one of the challenges facilitated, so to speak, by the teachers, right? It was an amazing success, right? And by doing that, the principal who sees this experience then says, wow, so this is what you mean by adventure. And that next year, yeah, I got a bus three times for my kids to go to the wilderness, right? But if we don't do that work, people don't get what we're doing. Who does adventure therapy work best for? I've heard people talk about this as an ableist, white, and privileged form of therapy. Is this true? Is it just for fit, wealthy white people? I think that's where we started, more than likely, right? Um, Again, I wasn't here, so I don't know how it started, but more than likely, uh, it was mostly for that population. But then again, I think that continues as long as we think of adventure being outside our heads. That I think if we think about adventure as being setting-based or tool-based, it's going to continue to marginalize people or, or limit the access for other people. Often we, you know, you hear sort of stereotypically the, uh, the, the assumptions that people of color don't like being outdoors. Okay. You know, I grew up in the Philippines. I'm a person of color. And, uh, yeah, I hated being sweaty. When I was sweaty, it was buggy. When it was buggy, that meant my, you know, I was getting bitten because we didn't have, you know, we only had, you know, DDT and that was banned. And so we didn't have, you know, bug dope, so to speak, right? And so, yeah, being outside meant that. It meant uh, the sun and and the sun for people, um, I, I don't know, for me and people like me back home. We didn't want to be out in the sun, you know. We didn't want to get darker because stereotypically and socially, you know, the darker you were, the less uh, up on the status that you were. And so, yeah, the outdoors had a lot of yuckiness to it. And growing up, a a way that parents, at least in my culture, parents would tell their kids stories about the scariness of being outdoors. Oh, it's dark there now, and there's all these, like, 
non-human experiences out there, birds that become these vampires and things of that nature to contain kids, to keep kids inside and to keep kids, you know, in, in inside the room rather than outdoors playing and stuff. So and that was common to to many of the people that I was growing up with. So there is validity to like having grown up in a culture where the outdoors was not my friend. I imagine that for African Americans, uh, part of the experience of the outdoors is about it goes back to sort of some slavery stuff. And so there might be issues with that. I remember working in Detroit and uh, working with African-American um, elementary students who were in, an, in a building that required um, uniforms. And I remember starting an adventure group with them. And the engagement was just amazing, right? Five weeks or six weeks into it, kids were getting disengaged, or at least were presenting as disengaged. And so when I asked them what was going on, they said their parents were really not in support of them continuing to do adventure. And when I continued to ask about that, it turned out that when the kids would have adventure day, I think it was on a Tuesday, when the kids would have adventure day, they'd come home and those the uniform was trashed, the uniform, because they got dirty and they got sweaty and they got right muddy. And so parents had to do an extra load of laundry to accommodate the uniforms, the number of uniforms that they had for any given week. And so it messed with their routine at home of how many times they needed to do laundry. And so I brought in a bag full of T-shirts and shirts and things, and the engagement rose again because now they would come to Adventure Take Off their right, their white or gray or blue shirts, and then they'd put on a t-shirt of mine or that I brought in, and then we would play with in that, and then we would be done. They would take that off and put back their uniforms, and that shirt could be used another day, right? Access and resources and all that kind of stuff limits sometimes people's participation, and we don't even really ever think about it. We don't, we don't know that that's what's driving the disengagement or the, the unwillingness to go. Sounds like early on you figured out a way to start to build equity into your practice, and maybe we could, as a field, start doing that a little bit more today. Yeah. In fact, there was intentionality on my part. Even when I designed, when I, when I was the lead designer for the for the adventure camp uh, at the school district, that I didn't want it to replicate the ropes courses that I used to. I used to take my kids, my, my clients, out to ropes courses, right, for them to experience a ropes course. And then when I had this opportunity to build our own camp in our, in our school district, I didn't want that to replicate just that. Instead, I wanted it to be a training ground. So, so I had, you know, two or three high ropes activities and one or two activities that needed belays and then a lot of low ropes activities that used the natural setting. There was a river um, behind our property, so we did river crossing using Burma bridges and, and rope things like that, you know, out there. But by and large, I wanted the camp to teach the participants skills in belaying and being up high and those kinds of things so that they had that experience so that when we then decided to do a real ropes course, we would drive somewhere and experience it out there. And we didn't have to do it in our backyard. 
right? So, so even then, the course was designed to, to meet the needs of the county, in a way. And it was, and I created, and, and, and most of the stuff was stuff that I put, put up and took down. And that was intentional. I wanted the other professionals who were coming to the camp, I would train them one, two, three times a year on how to use the adventure bag. And then I would give them a bag to take back to their school district so that they could use the adventure bag. To me, the adventure bag was was critical because it allowed access. That meant that meant if we were working in a in a in a classroom with cognitively cognitively impaired kids, then we had the tools right there. We didn't have to struggle to take them on buses that were handicap accessible, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like that. Right. So yeah, access has always been, probably has been front and center in my in my adventure practice in terms of what I did and what tools I use. You've done some awesome work integrating adventure therapy into school social work practice for kids with autism spectrum diagnoses. Mm. This seems like a creative and unique form of adventure therapy. Could you tell us about this work? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my my pet, my love projects, right? Uh, so uh, there's a history there. So there's a school social worker who works at, at, this, pro- at this high school where they have a, a program for kids with autism. And she happened to go to an all-day workshop from her regional social work group. And I was the, I had been invited to be the keynote speaker for that. As she listened to me, she was reminded that years before that, she had come to one of my classes and had done some adventure stuff, right? And so during that conference, she pulled me aside and said, oh my gosh, right, I took your class eight years ago, and, <laughs> and I never thought about using the, those skills to, to the work that I'm doing now, and so let me tell you what we're doing. And then she told me about their program, about a program, a social skills program with kids with autism, and how they had partners from the general ed population, and, and that they did a lot of talking and, and playing, you know, simple card games and things of that nature, so enhancing the social skills. And then she asked if I would be interested in coming and infusing that work uh, with adventure. And I said, of course. And it's been eight years now since then. And we, we started off, I, I just went to just look at what they were doing. And then I started to think about like, oh, what are the things that they're doing to enhance certain social skills that can be done using action? And we started to infuse it with some, with some uh, adventure activities. Uh, I offered training for uh, the, the social workers. There were two of them. And then uh, specialists, you know, speech and language specialists, the autism consultant, the, right, the special ed teachers, some general ed teachers. I trained them in adventure facilitation and this and that. And, and we slowly... You know, so so the program has looked different from when it started to when it is now, but it's all been a building project. Um, and of course, right when people think about kids with autism, it's sort of like, oh, they don't like to be touched. Da, da, da. There's like a, a list of properties that that sort of come with that diagnosis. And what we're noticing, what we're finding is that if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism because every kid or every adult that has the spe- is on the spectrum has different qualifications, different qualities, different strengths and different areas for improvement and stuff. So putting that perspective on 
into our heads with the adventure perspective, we started to think about, okay, who are the kids, who are the students that we have now, and what are their limitations, and how do we address those limitations through adventure? And, uh, yeah, um, uh, amazing. I mean, the highlights in my life, in, in my in my head about that program, you know, include, you know, this young man, maybe 15, who would like... Uh, I called him the, the flapping hands young man because he would walk around and hum to himself and flap his hands and and uh, when he got a little nervous and stuff. And so we would have to sort of, you know, ask him to come join us and, and slowly and, and he would circle us until he finally was comfortable standing in the circle with us and stuff. And, and whenever we started to do something that seemed anxious to him, he would start doing that kind of stuff. Watching this young man be lifted by his peers through an ele- through a spider's web hole. That one makes me cry. And then, sessions later, him volunteering to be one of the bases for a reach for the sky activity where we lifted kids to go up to put a chalk mark up on a wall. For him to allow other people not only to stand up on him, but for two or three people with their hands on him, touching him while he did this, uh, just blows me away. Just blows me away. The, so, yeah, people were doing, you know, lean, leaning on other people and, and tag games and holding hands to cross the line and any and all of the activities in adventure. Not a single adventure activity needed to be taken away because the kids or the participants were students with autism. None. We adapted many of them. Adapted them to accommodate the needs of the kids who were in that room in that moment.